In the excitement, my knowledge of pace had deserted me. My legs seemed to meet no resistance at all, almost as if impelled by an unknown force. We seemed to be going so slowly. Impatiently, I shouted faster. It's clear as day to me that to love someone, you must let them be. True to themselves, that's who they want to see. Looking in the mirror every day, are you even okay? I love you, you love me. We could never possibly be. This is what we need. It's what we need. This is what we need. It's what we need. This is what we need. Hello and it's welcome to the Pain we Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host, need. and it's I am very happy to be joined on the other it's line tonight by my good friend and former coach and mentor, Joe Paleo. This is our second attempt at recording this episode. We actually recorded a really, really good one that no one unfortunately will ever hear. Joe was kind enough to drive up to the literal home of the pain cave and we did a good 90 minutes or so. And uh, it really came out great except for the fact that there was some kind of glitch with the recording and all we heard were skips over and over pretty much every two or three seconds for the whole 90 minutes. So. Unfortunately, we had to junk that one, but Joe is back remotely today to kind of, try, we'll try our best to recreate everything we talked about before because there was some really cool information there and uh, we had a really great time. So hopefully we can kind of reproduce some of the magic we had from there before. Joe, welcome to the pain cave. <laughs> Thanks again. Again. Yes, exactly. It was great to have you up. It was a short visit, but uh, it was really good to see you. How's everything been going since I saw you last? Uh, kind of, kind of cool. Like, uh, the book was released right around when I saw you. I did uh, my first book signing at the Haddonfield Running Company, the store that I founded and it's since sold. Uh, and now it's four stores in South Jersey. And I saw a lot of friends and coworkers. It was, it was great. It was like a really magical fun time i got to do the run that we've done hundreds of times oh the wednesday night group run yeah the wednesday night group run sure yes yeah, so it was a it was a great experience to start off um the second edition of promoting the book um i have another uh, book signing at a local store in, outside of philly in a couple of weeks um and then i think i'm going to take this show on the road a bunch of friends have asked if i visit like uh austin and uh, colorado springs so I'm going to be in communication with uh, stores out there to try to hook that up. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun because you get to meet run real runners who sincerely are looking at the deeper aspects of running. And, uh, you know, I love to communicate about all that stuff. So it's, it's, it's always a good time doing a book signing. So you had mentioned the Haddonfield Running Company, which, as you said, that's the store that you founded. That's where um, we kind of came in contact for the first time. That used to be my kind of home away from home during uh, med school and residency, particularly med school. Just a short train ride from, uh, from where I was in Philly. And, you know, those Wednesday night group runs, we had a lot of Saturday morning runs. And 
I spend a good bit of time, yeah, in the back of the store, in the shower, on the couch, uh, just drinking a beer or grabbing a nap or whatever. Those were some good times. You know, I have to ask you, completely off topic, but you, you had mentioned you sold the store a while back to Dave Welsh, who's expanded it into a, a group of stores across South Jersey. He's done a really good job with it. I don't hear from Dave much anymore. I see some stuff on Facebook nowadays, and he, um, Dave was a, a you know, a, like a intermediate hurdler, I think, in college, and then he got into, he was a, running some real good marathons, and he stepped up to 50K and was running some great times, and now, all of a sudden, he's like a, a master's miler. What's his deal now? I think there's there's that weird place where you sort of like the nibble at the edges, so you yeah, it was really just fast. It was just weird that he kind of bounced back and forth, I thought. I don't think, I think at the end it was purely track. Yeah. And I think that's, to have the kind of success if you want to run at a national level, I think it's almost impossible to bounce back and forth. Right, so, right. So, you know, uh, we've talked about Jorge Maravilla, who I coach, can bounce back. He just, he just finished 11th at Beta Breakers overall and top masters. Oh, wow. So he can he can do it, and he can run ultras. I don't know if he's going to head to the track and run a fifteen hundred. Right, that's a pretty that's a pretty big range. But if you got talent, you got talent. And if you're willing to train, you're willing to train. And if you have a, a coach who can do it, 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 it can be done. Is it ideal? No, I never I never want my ultra marathoner to run a mile on a track. Right. However, Jorge asked me to do that, which was really strange, but sort of goes along with the whole process of what we're trying to do is make him a better big picture runner. Right. Not necessarily just focus on one particular area of running. Um, I think it's great for runners to be able to explore everything. I also think you have to be a specialist at times, especially when it's big events. You just have to stay away from the other stuff. Although there's a weird theory, which I believe in, that you're the best indicator for marathon performance is actually my a mile time trial. That's I remember you mentioned that to me a couple of years ago when I was um yeah, I was I was getting ready for my first 100k and then I had planned like 6 weeks later a road 50k just cuz I felt like I was in kind of marathon shape or as close to marathon shape as, as I had been in a couple of years and and I had been doing all this or a, a good bit of short track work and uh you had you had mentioned that where the theory of uh, your mile fitness being your best predictor of marathon fitness. Now, the caveat is you also have had to do the marathon training volume-wise. Right. But if you think about it, it makes total sense. If you've done the appropriate volume of training, but your leg speed is such that you're running a really fast mile, you, you have pretty much you're covering all your bases. Right. What happens when people want to do a half marathon as an indicator for a marathon, you may get like a false positive. You may really run a good half marathon. Well, that means what? Maybe I don't have enough volume to run a really good marathon. Right. I'm really good for a half marathon. Right. Right. So then when you try to extrapolate in the marathon, things go woefully incorrect because you're basing your pacing off your half marathon performance. Right. But if you've done the volume of training and you can run a fast mile, you're pretty much guaranteed you're going to do pretty well under normal conditions. Right. So we'll get back to Jorge because I wanted to ask you more about working with him and and what kind of what you've been working on with him and, and that sort of thing and how it can relate to kind of the rest of us mortals out there. But <laughs> the first thing I want to talk to you about and, and 
kind of the main impetus for recording this episode when we are, or when we did the first time and, and are rec- recording again, <laughs> is uh, your book, which you mentioned briefly. The second edition of your book, uh, Running Anatomy, which was first published in 2010, came out just a couple of weeks ago. And like you said, you're about to hopefully take the show on the road and and, and do some, some publicity for that. And I'm happy to put the word out on this book because for me, and I think for many people, it was kind of a a real eye opener. I think, especially especially eight years ago when the first edition came out, as to kind of the anatomy behind the act of running and the importance of strength in general uh, to run training, injury prevention, and everything else. Like I said, I think that was something I wasn't quite as dialed in on as I am now. And, and reading your book the first time was was a real eye-opener from that perspective. Tell us a little bit how you came to write the book. I know we talked about this a little bit last time, but it was a, a neat story on, on how you kind of became involved in this whole process. Well, I'll make it a truncated version, even more <laughs> so than the first one. Okay. But simply, Human Kinetics was looking for an author who combined the skills of understanding anatomy understanding strength training and and had coaching ability and experience human kinetics the publisher of um daniel's running formula law of running and many other classics yeah and a a fantastic company to work with from my experience both experiences so they're looking for an author and one of their authors who had written strength training a strength training book not related to running was a retired marine and i had met him when i was coaching the u.s marine corps running program at a training camp in the old Olympic Training Center in Claremont, Florida. And I answered a question that he posed to the group, and he was impressed that as a runner, or as a running coach, I would understand strength training. And what he didn't know was I had done Olympic lifting when I was in college, uh, when I was wrestling. Our assistant coach sort of, he, he was doing it, so we did it. And I really understood it. And I coached my Rutgers Camden kids in college. We used to do Olympic lifts. Um, power cleans in particular. Did you really, with free weights and stuff? We did. It was real. So, you know, we've talked about this. The program that I inherited at Rutgers Camden in the early 2000s was one of the least accomplished Division III uh, programs in the country. That might be so putting we it mildly, yes. every edge. Right. So everything we could do to get better, we rolled the dice on, as long as it was in a thoughtful manner. And that was one of them. Uh, one of the boys on the team really felt it was beneficial. And that's sort of what prompted me to think about strength training as a performance enhancer. Because, you know, the Kenyan runners really don't, couldn't care less. They right. They're like silly, silly American runners spending all this time <laughs> when we're going out for a third run today. Right, right. Um, but at a certain level, you, you need these added uh, supplements to your training. Um, and I wasn't at Rutgers Camden. I wasn't getting elite caliber high school runners coming in so we tried everything and this really stuck and helped us but long story is the author at human kinetics um gave them my name so i got a call while i was coaching up in new york city and said uh, we'd like you to submit a writing sample and i think i went through it i did it with a mutual friend of ours long story is they wanted a doctor from great britain who had written for runners world in europe Dr. Patrick Milroy, who was a doctor for the British team at the Commonwealth Games, Mm -hmm. they wanted him involved in the process. They liked my writing sample. They asked me to be part of it. And we wrote Running Anatomy, the first edition. 
So the second edition, as you, as we said, came out just a couple of weeks ago. Did did they approach you because of the success of the first one? I mean, the first one was very successful. I, I mean, I, you know, from a just a general standpoint, has been translated into multiple languages around the world, and and you know, you can go on Amazon and find it in you know Mandarin and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. So was it what was it that kind of said it was time for a second edition now was it that they wanted to replicate that or i know you had some new things that you wanted to bring to the project right so um it was the first edition was really successful by uh any any barometer um 17 or 18 translated languages a lot of domestic copies sold um well received within the running community both you know i don't want to say elite running community but serious-minded runners as well as recreational runners who really liked the illustrations mm-hmm. of the muscles used. So we hit a lot of different places. And um, Human Kinetics came to me a couple years ago and said, we'd like you to be involved doing the second edition. And I said, ah, that'd be great. But I'm, I sort of moved on. <laughs> um, I'm doing research for my runners in very different areas, uh, not anatomy. I've, I, right. We talked about this before. Anatomy is a short of running is a real short course if you were to take it in college. You can probably muscle through it in a semester. Right. So you and I both had this same, like, let's go everywhere in running and try to press every button and see what's there. <laughs> and so I just had already done it. Um, and I was, I was like, well, I'd like to really write on these things, which aren't part of that. And um, they sort of met me in a place where they're like, okay, we'll, we'll allow you to do a couple other topics, but we would like you to actually do some stuff here again. And I, I said, sure, that sounds great. So that's what we ended up doing. So I rewrote the second chapter, which is essentially I tried to distill all the information I've ever learned about running training right. and put it into one chapter. So that's ridiculously challenging. And I'm foolish or stupid enough to, to attempt it. And um, you recognize you have limitations on what you can, can't write about. But um, I was more than willing to give it a roll. And I wrote a little bit about some new technology in running. I wrote about Pilates, which I've sort of embraced as an older runner, mm-hmm. um, which I think fits perfectly with the strength training exercises in the book. Yeah. So that's sort of how we went about it. Yeah, definitely bring the Pilates element in uh, dovetails nicely with, I think, what the rest of the book is about. And I, d- I hadn't realized that you guys were doing a lot of free weight and Olympic style lifting in college, which I think is probably, I don't know now, but at least speaking from my own experience uh, as an athlete and then as a, as a college coach, uh, an assistant coach later on, I don't know that there are a lot of programs that are doing that sort of stuff. I mean, I think everyone at least nominal, nominally pays some lip service to the idea of weightlifting and strength training. And, you know, we certainly did when I was an athlete, but it wasn't much more than lip service. And it certainly wasn't anything, you know, systematic where we had a plan that was targeting X, Y, and Z. It was more just like, oh, today's an arm day, tomorrow's a leg day. And, you know, you kind of half heart your way through some, you know, leg curls or, or a leg extension, leg press kind of thing. And, and you call it a day. But I think as I got older, and this book came along for me kind of at a nice time where I had you know, started to have some niggling injuries here and there. And it wasn't, you know, it, it was getting a little bit more past just go out and run every day. And I really kind of needed to start looking for an edge in terms of A, staying healthy and B, performance. Looking into this in depth was kind of crucial for me in terms of me taking the next step in my evolution as a runner. Well, obviously, I wrote 
two books about it, so I think <laughs> I feel strongly that there's a component to strength training which makes your running better. That's a vague better is a vague term. Does it make you faster? Well it can because if you're not injured, you're training regularly, you'll get better and faster. Sure. That's the same principle as many of the PEDs is it's not in and of themselves going to make you faster, but it'll make you recover faster and you can train harder with less downtime. And that's how you're going to get, that's how you're going to see the benefit. The the key part of that was less down, less downtime equals planned downtime. (laughs) Right. We, you know, we all recognize that if you don't take rest, you're, you're sort of heading for disaster. But if you plan your rest, and you plan it intelligently in a well-thought-out system, you're actually aiding your ability to get better. And that's such a big component of what people miss. And I think another component is doing some type of strength training. And then we've discussed this. What does strength mean? Because right now, there's a lot of exercises that I could have included in the book. And I don't necessarily know if they make you stronger. Mm -hmm. They're very, very functional. But right. I struggle with this because, and I, I, I feel kind of redeemed. I just read a great article on general strength. Okay. And the premise of it was like, I want to get strong so I can go to places from my strength. Like I can take a tributary out this direction or that direction. But if I don't have general strength, I can't. Right. That's so laying right the now, foundation. These exercises are these tributaries. Like let's do these things for your hips, glutes. Glute activation is this big term that we've heard for about six years That's your years favorite, now. right? <laughs> yeah, I, I hate it because are you really getting stronger? Like if you don't have any basis of strength, you're doing glute activation exercises, but it's actually your core that's causing your problem because everything is not in the right, aligned in the right spot. Right. You can do glute activation exercises all you want. Right. So I struggle. Like I really struggle when I talk with strength trainers and physical therapists about what you should do because there are certain exercises that are very general just purely get you physically strong Mm -hmm. i i like them i think it's great and other exercises that are propagated as being these best exercises for runners that i i I have no interest in doing whatsoever (laughs) and now partly is i'm a contrarian so i'm going to always look a little differently at how this works but I think my track record as a coach with the success of my athletes, not just in track, track but also in field, mm-hmm. sort of lends some credence to sometimes looking at things a little different. Right. It's not really a bad thing. It, it, can, it can be. But I think when you do it thoughtfully, it's a very good thing. The, I mean, that, that idea, which we've talked about before, of uh, functional strength versus general strength uh, is an interesting one. And I think, right, people latch on to that kind of buzzword of, of functional strength. But... I think you make an excellent point that it all come it has, has to come from a basis of general strength. And if you if you look at it from a physiologic standpoint, I think building general strength and just increasing your kind of neuromuscular connections and the ability to make those or to activate certain muscles is going to help regardless of athletic pursuit, uh, staying healthy, performance, whatever it is. Uh, I think that idea of of kind of building general strength is is an important one. Well. Think about the youth movement. There's been a lot of articles saying that specialization to one sport is not necessarily the best thing for young kids. Right, for sure. 
So if we start as adults being so functionally aware that the only strength movements we want to do are ones that are functional, right? we're essentially putting ourselves in the same box. Now, right. yes, we're not 14 years old, but I found myself, and I write about, I've talked about this, I started to move in a linear fashion. I swam, I biked, I ran, everything was straight ahead. Sure. It wasn't necessarily the best thing for me. Right. So if we're only going to do functional movements at a point, I don't know how beneficial they are because we, we don't have general strength. Like literally I can move trees in my backyard. It sounds ridiculous because I'm physically a stronger man than my size indicates. Mm -hmm. But if I only did functional strength, how really worthwhile would be doing yard work in my yard? I'm a, I'm like an adult. I'm not a professional runner. <laughs> and most of the people reading my book are not professional runners. Right. So you need to be physically strong. We have to live a life, and then we have to go do our training on top of it. Elite runners pretty much just do training all the time. They go to the massage therapist, and they have their nutritionist. Things are a lot different for us than them. Right. I think the one or one of the things that endurance athletes, distance runners get nervous about when we start talking about building strength and you know you, you throw out the idea of doing some olympic style lifts or squats or whatever everyone starts to kind of shut down and panic because you're afraid of adding mass and and the idea of getting bulky and and having to carry around extra weight is you know it, it's an old idea i think you know from probably 30 or 40 years ago of the idea of strength research and, and building mass that way. But I think people still get anxious about it. And that's what keeps people from kind of exploring some of these exercises that you talk about. Well, let me ask you a question in your own life. Okay. Now you run a lot more than a normal runner. Who's not an elite runner does. Sure. But if, if your diet was straight, cause that's sort of where you break down often. Right. If you were to run 50 miles a week and strength train three days a week right. for 40 minutes a day, right? how much mass do you think you would put on? I mean, with a, a regular person's diet, like a non-crazy no, like person's diet? like a thoughtful diet. diet. Not the diet you would default to if you <laughs> Right, <could>. exactly. <laughs> like my, my non-insane, you know, my non-insane training diet, but you're, right, my, my non-default diet. Uh <laughs> Which is mostly milkshakes and stuff. Um, <laughs> exactly. Right. So, no. Right. If I was doing, yeah, 50 or 60 miles a week, uh, yeah, I probably wouldn't put on much of anything. I mean, I've, I've kind of found that even with my default diet, my, uh, if I'm eating like crap, my break point for training-wise and not, you know, bulking up or putting on weight is like 80 miles a week. So, if I'm actually watching what I eat to a reasonable extent... Yeah, 50 or 60 miles a week, you're probably burning enough calories at that point that you're going to offset any kind of, you know, mass right. gain. So, so for me, I can run 20 miles a week, do strength training three days a week for 40 minutes, eat an appropriate nutritious diet with plenty of calories, mm, that's and the put trick. on almost no extra mass. I'll right. be physically stronger. I'll be able to move things easier. I'm not going to look dramatically different. Right. Now, if I chose to, I'd eat more calories, probably do a little less aerobic training, and then I could put on mass. Right. So you're just moving that scale between the caloric intake, your aerobic training, and then your strength training. And you're just moving it into different places to add or not add mass. Right. So you're in control of what you want to do 
based on the choices you make in those areas. So if you don't want to put on masks but get strength, you absolutely can do that. You just have to dial the other things a little bit different. Right, right. No, it's a good point. I wanted to get, uh, you know, we could talk about the strength training all day, but I, I do want people to just go out and read the book because it's, like I said, it's really, I think it's an important part of training for anyone who's even a little bit serious about the sport or, or just really wants to continue to be able to do whatever their their baseline exercise running is in a healthy way and to be able to continue it long term and, and relatively injury free. I think it's important to kind of examine some of these things. So I, I don't want to spoil too much of what's in the book. And I did want to get into some different things that we've you know talked about for many years, you and I, mostly related to your coaching and and kind of just your philosophy on on how things on how coaching and and your work with athletes goes you've got a long long history as a coach mostly of of distance runners but not exclusively when i first like i said when i when we first started hanging out which was god almost 20 years ago now was it yep. was it 20 years ago it might it be like 20 years ago it was like late 90s right around yeah. 2000 yeah, yeah. cuz i finished med school in 01 so yeah. and i was definitely I was definitely at the store in the late 90s. So yeah, for the last 20 years, geez. At, at that point, you were coaching, you you had already been coaching for quite some time, but you were um, coaching, I think, uh, was it Pius X um, High uh, School? I was coaching at Paul the Sixth. Or Paul the Sixth, right, sorry. Yeah. And had some fantastic success. I mean, some just real powerhouse teams. And then you moved on and, and started coaching at Rutgers Camden, which we need to talk a little bit about also. Um, but that was a, a wholly different challenge for you. And now, and, and then again, your work with the Marine Corps Marathon team, which we'll talk about. And, and now with Tim Van Lu, who's a, an elite javelin thrower who you coached originally in college and then have continued to work with through his post-collegiate career. What is it about coaching that keeps you coming back over and over to, what is it about that idea of working with athletes that, that attracts you, that, that keeps you coming back? Because you have a lot of other stuff going uh, on, I mean, with the writing and everything else. But, you know, there, there's obviously something about the idea of being a coach that appeals to you. So I've actually thought a lot about that because there's been plenty of times where I've thought I'd like to do something totally different. And I always sort of get pulled back to coaching. And... There's so many pieces of why it would take a long time to deconstruct. But I think in the end, it's kind of selfish in a way. There's probably no better place for me in the world than like a late, uh, like in late afternoon, like 4.30 in the fall on a cross-country course on a perfect day. Or a spring day at the track watching athletes trying to get better. Right. I mean, to me, that's that's almost the perfect place to be. And if I can have a role in helping the athletes achieve while I get to enjoy that setting, mm -hmm. it kind of dovetails with sort of my mission of life, which I have a tattoo on my arm that says to be of use. It's a Marge Piercy poem. And it's one of my favorite poems. And it really just says a lot about how I want to live my life. And I have this skill. I don't have a lot of skills, but I have this ability to see things and understand intuitively this is how this athlete can get better to achieve the goals he or she is trying to, trying to achieve. It's, it's, that's, it's no more complicated than that, yet it's incredibly complicated simultaneously because there's so many elements that go into that. Right. 
Does that make any sense? Yeah. Or am I just no, no. I was going to say you've you've always. I mean, as a, a you know a friend and a, and a observer, a fan of of your athletes, you've always seemed to be more, or not. I, I don't want to say more, but but less motivated by results than by, I don't know, progress or just unlocking something in the coach athlete relationship. I think more so than not that you don't care how well your athletes do, and I know you're very proud of them when they right. do accomplish things but you know unlike some other coaches i know I, I i've never felt like that's been you know your your primary driver I, I know it's a it's certainly great when we have success but it it it's always seemed like that was a secondary thing for you and it was just something about the relationship you have with your athletes or, or just i don't know if it's what you get from working with them day to day or planning out a season and seeing them work towards goals or something like that. But you, you get something different out of it than just, just seeing what, what, because if, if it was all results oriented for you, I don't know if you would have stuck at a program like Rutgers Camden with, you know, zero advantages in terms of recruiting or facilities or funding or anything like that. Yeah, um, not the first, not the first four years. Once we got it turned around and started the ball rolling, yeah, but even then, it was, you know, it was never going to be a place where you were going to go and, and, you know, win national championships, uh, you know, over and over. It was, Although we it was 17th. Right, no, that's year, what I'm saying. Is, and, and we had a national champ, two-time national champ. Right, right. Yeah, but, so but you I were always going to be at a disadvantage, think... what is what I'm saying. And, and, yeah. and it would have been easy enough for you to go to where, Penn State or something like that, where, you know, the resources and the the recruiting base and, you know, not having to, you know, do track workouts in front of a prison might have been an advantage for you in terms of getting, you know, top-notch athletes in there. But it it just never seemed like the end result for you was the real goal. Well, so it's interesting. When you, maybe it might might be different with you, but maybe you can help me. When you were in medical school, I can't imagine you sat down and said, I want my life, like reverse engineering it. I want to make this amount of money. I want to do this and this. Maybe that's part of the thought process. But in the end, you know, this is kind of interesting to me. Right. I can do some good. And so that's how I took it. Like, I have a skill at doing this. The reason I'm kind of like, like you said, I'm not at a bigger college partly is because my family's here and I'm not going anywhere. Sure. But the other part is it means absolutely nothing to me. I can coach. I'm at USA's every year. I think I've been to 12 of the last 13 cross-country championships and six straight national championships. I've coached an athlete in the Olympic trials in the javelin and the marathon. Right. So I don't care about the big picture stuff. It's just really fun to do what I'm doing. And if someone called me tomorrow and said, I have a challenge for you, I want, I'm a blah, 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 whatever event, I think you're the coach for me. Can we work together? And I feel like some kind of like connection. Right. I'd do it. If it was discus or hammer throw or 200 meters, I would figure out how to be the best I could be to help that athlete. And that's what I love. That's what's so cool about track and field. You have all these awesome events that when you do a deep dive into them, it comes back to being able to coach in a certain way. But you learn all these other techniques which could, can be moved through different events. I use some distance running stuff with Tim in the javelin, which sounds kind of crazy, but he was fourth in the U.S. last year. I guess it's working. So let me ask you about that, working with Tim. 
is it, or I guess when you first started, was it uh, intimidating to you to kind of step into a new kind of realm or a new um, discipline with, with somebody that talented who... So um, you know me. Right. You know I'm not intimidated pretty much. No, I know. But th- I just, but that's kind of the I'm thing. Like, like I think... I'm like that idiot shows up and I'm like, hey, guys, guess what? I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> we can all start that. So um, <laughs> I showed up at the, the field events and these coaches, you know, clearly I don't look like any of them as coaches or athletes. Right. And then the first couple of years is kind of awkward because they're like, what's this guy? Like, is he his friend? You know, like I ended up being like Tim's, the guy who held his bags, moved the javelins. <laughs> and, you know, and we were just out at the Olymp- uh, Chula Vista, the old Olympic training center in California, USATF invited to this app. So I'm coaching with these coaches and with the best athletes. And I think initially there was some skepticism, like this guy can't do it. But like I said, he was fourth. And he was seventh the year before that. So we're making headway. And then it just goes away. And then you're just a human being and another coach. And you just do what you do. And we none of that matters. I ask people all the time for help at things that I am unable to learn or haven't seen. I'll say, what was that? Why are you doing this? You know, I ask questions. I'm inquisitive. I don't I try to. There's no ego. Right. You know, this is just trying to. How can I help Tim be better? Right. That's right. the only question that I'm trying to answer. You had, uh, I don't want to say stepped away, but you, it seemed for a while after you were coaching the Marine Corps Marathon team, you had kind of, coaching distance runners had kind of taken a back seat for you a little bit. And I, I know a lot of that was, was as you got more involved with Tim and, and working with his career. But recently, as you mentioned, you've been working with Jorge Maravilla, uh, one of the top ultra marathon runners in the country over the past several years. How did that come about? And uh, talk a little bit about working with him, what you know, you guys have been focusing on and, and how kind of you're spinning that forward for his career. Sure. So I, I had been coaching uh, Jorge's uh, girlfriend, Ashley Ralph, in running and triathlons. She felt that I would be a good fit with Jorge. So she suggested that Jorge contacted me. We talked and um, it was fine. It was a good conversation, but I think Jorge was a little nervous because other coaches had approached him. Ashley felt that I would be a good fit for him for specific reasons, mm-hmm. which I think ended up being accurate. But um, I think he was a little wary. Um, and then I sort of worked with him a little bit. And we, it was still kind of tentative. It wasn't full bore. And um, I think his PR, marathon PR, was like 228. But he wanted to try to make the Olympics for El Salvador because he has dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. He had to run 219, which is a that's a big jump. That's a big jump, he yeah. He ended up running 221 down at the Gold Coast Marathon in Australia. And I think that sealed our relationship because he's like, Coach said I could do this. I almost did it. Right. I, I have faith that this guy knows what he's doing. And then he finished fourth at North Face, which he's really good at that, so he's going to do really well with or without my help. But I've been able to sort of follow his – Jorge likes the race – he likes doing varied things. He likes to keep his attention constantly on a race and usually different distances. And I have, like, from working with the Marine Corps, you know, you're dealing with athletes who can be deployed. Uh, they're changing jobs every three years, moving to a different part of the country. So you have to be pretty fluid. And right. I think that's a skill, especially with athletes, elite athletes you have to have. If you get fixed, I think you're going to struggle. And so I'm not wedded to a system. You hear people say, well, I'm – I'm a Jack Daniels follower. I'm a Hanson's follower. I'm a Pete Fitzinger. His book is 
I think that's awesome, but I actually can, I understand all their training mm -hmm. methodology. Owen Anderson. Unlike some coaches, I don't try to mix them all up in one stew because that, that's a recipe for absolute disaster. Right. But once you identify the type of athlete you're dealing with, right. then you can use the best pieces of the approach that's appropriate. Right. And then I put my own spin on it because I've been doing this for 30 years. I feel like there's, a, there's an approach that I've developed. Um, so I can do that. So Jorge just was pretty, pretty good synergy right away. Um, I recognized his speed, which he's ridiculously fast, like for a distance run, ultra distance run. Mm -hmm. But most coaches probably wouldn't even have sought that out. But I have him run. I mean, he'll bang out eight eight hundreds and two twenty. Wow. I mean, it's crazy, right? Like that's really fast. You know, not many, old, especially masters ultra runners, can do that. Right. Some of the young guys, uh, Jim Wamsley, and, oh, yeah. and those guys, uh, you know, certainly. Excuse me, sorry. With a with a you know track background of you know fourteen minute five k's or whatever, but right, not not many forty year old guys are still getting out there. And you know, I I don't think I could run one two twenty anymore, let alone eight. Yeah, with with one to one rest. Yeah. So he's getting you know running two twenty with two twenty rest, or you know I can give you multiple workouts we've done that are kind of funky. You can run through thousands in three minutes. You know that type of thing. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So, so, so I learned the tools that he had that I could work with as a coach, which is really fun. Right. And, you know, it's always fun as a coach having um, a Cadillac or, a, you know, a Ferrari or whatever. You know, you have a really nice engine. <laughs> right. And you're like, this could be fun because now I get to use all the skills that I have. Because if, if you're an ultra runner or a marathoner and you're purely – a distance-based animal. Mm -hmm. That's like, a, like I don't want to say one-trick pony, but that's your skill. Right. It's kind of boring, right? You just keep going to do long runs. Right. But when you get someone who's got a set of skills, that's a lot of fun because then I can get creative and I can use my natural creativity as a coach. But does it make it, I mean, how challenging does it make it that he is so kind of peripatetic and that he, you know, like you say, he, he wants to run you know, a hundred K and then he wants to run a mile and then he wants to run, you know, beta breakers and all this, like how much right. of a, how much of a challenge is that trying to just meld all it's, those things together? It's only challenging when he doesn't give me the heads up a while in <laughs> when it's like, when Oh, two, two weeks from now, right. Boston after being the third master and, and says, I want, I'm, Oh, I coach. I'm sorry. I signed up for the, um, Big Sur Marathon to do the Boston to Big Sur Challenge. <laughs> first, like, you, first you'd heard of it. Correct. The, the first I heard of it was like Tuesday after or, uh, Wednesday after Boston. And I'm like, what is going on? And then he, and then he says, oh, and I'm going to be doing beta breakers after that, which is a, what? 12K, I think? Yeah, something. So you're like, okay. But then I, yeah, I'd like anything else. I'd be like, cool. This is another chance for me to trot out some of my skills here. Right. Right. So it's that. So in a way, it's like if he's willing to do it and I'm not driving that as the coach. OK, that's fun for me, because what what do I have to lose in that? He's committed. I just I get to have fun. I would never suggest that. But once it's we're already in, you got to go do this. Got to go do it. How much of it is do you find when you're working with an athlete like Jorge, how much of it is holding him back and kind of. Um, oh, all, all the time. Yeah. Because, Jay, you know this. Any runner who wants to be good is willing to do the work. Right. Very rarely, especially in a – so a distance runner is a work-based character. 
Like middle distance runners can get a little squirrely and don't always want to do the work. Distance runners always want to do the work. Right. They can't stop running. Right. So it's constantly like being the voice saying to them, this is where you need to be. Trust me. And we've, I think when you had um, Dr. Karp on, he was clear. Over 70 miles, diminishing returns, right? You may work a little bit on improving running economy. Right. But from a VO2 max standpoint, and uh, yes, that's, that's about as, in terms right. of just you, fitness, you know, right? That's, well, you're not I getting much better. Coach, I, I always think that I can teach you so many skills about training and racing that you can be undervalued and extend your running career longer mm-hmm. and still have really good success. And I think Jorge is a testament to that. He's actually gotten better. And he probably only runs 60 miles. I don't, I don't even know if he's run over 75 miles a week with me as his coach. Really? Which is kind of crazy as, a, as an ultramarathoner at yeah. the level he's at. Yeah. I'm just, that's not my bias. Right. right. If he needed to, if he said to me, coach, we have to do, I have to do this. This is my big show. Right. And I have six months of recovery after that. Of course we would go all in. Yeah. But as long as it's a viable career, you got to respect the fact that there's a couple more years here of him or any athlete being really good. Like Tim has three or four more years of really successful javelin throw. Right. I mean, that's the push and the pull, right? You feel like, especially, especially with somebody like Jorge, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't want to speak for him or anything like that, but I mean, the window, it, it closes for all of us eventually. And once you hit 40, there's, you know, you can sort of smell the end. And my job is to gradually allow the window to come down, not to slam it shut. Right, right. That's an that's an excellent point. One thing we had talked about a little bit last time that I wanted to touch on briefly before we let you go is the psychology and the mental aspect of just coaching and, and distance running and, and sport in general. I know you have a, a longstanding interest in that, and that made up a good bit, or a little bit at least, of what you said you had changed in the new edition of the book. I mean, I know that's a a big interest of yours. How do you integrate kind of the mental aspect into your work with athletes? So when I visited you, we stayed talking about previous podcasts you had done and sort of my interest right now. So you had Alex Hutchinson on who's super, super bright. Yeah. Great writer and his research into the mind. And I, said to you like and then you had dr carp on who's exercise physiologist and very clearly physiological Mm -hmm. emphasis although he does pay attention to the mind neurologically it's less of an emphasis right my emphasis is the the place the nexus of the neurological the uh, physiological and the psychological Mm -hmm. and that's the place where i find the most fascinating and where i'm more interested in, in doing anything with my athletes um, I, I, it just appeals to me because if you're trying to be a whole runner, and we were just using Hori as an example, going between different distances, or as a coach, me coaching field events and distance events, I have to understand all those pieces. Right. If I was just a distance-based coach, let's say ultra-distance running, I probably could get away with learning less. I don't want to do that. I'm fascinated by all this. My, my biggest lament is I probably don't have enough time on earth to gain all the insight I want to on how to help my athletes be better. My son now is like 16 and 
I want to work with him because I have all this knowledge. He has no interest. He's just like, Dad, I'll just go out and do my thing. <laughs> and fortunately, he's really good. But, and I think he's going to end up being really good because via osmosis, some of this stuff will sink in just from <laughs> conversations. But it's fascinating to me. And I'm just seeing you, know, you, you love running. You love it. You want to know everything about it. Well, that's where I'm at. I want to know everything about it. Right. And if I can use it to help the athletes again achieve their goals, so be it. So I'm, I'm kind of selfish. It's like, I get to learn all this, and then I get to help someone who wants to do it. Because I no longer want to do it. Like, I don't mind training. Right. I don't, I don't want to go out and train seriously and race. I, I like to keep fit. Right. But, but there's athletes out there with skill sets who I can help, mm-hmm. and I get to learn. It's pretty cool. That learning, I think, for you is, I mean, in, in kind of everything that I've known you to, to be interested in, it's it's that it's that idea of kind of getting more knowledge and, and just processing new ideas that I think has always kind of driven you. And the, the part that I sort of understood now as I've gotten older, I want to learn for, to, for application's sake. I don't mm-hmm. want to learn to live in theory. Right. I actually, as a coach, I want to apply what I learned. I want to test what I've learned. I mentioned to you, I'm sort of consulting with a company in L.A. devising a sensor system to track impact, body movement. To me, that's the next frontier. Mm -hmm. And I want to use that with my athletes to help them get better. Mm -hmm. So it's just, this is all like hopefully a process that will continue for another 20 or 30 years. And I'll be able to, at the end of it, be like, wow, I really got a lot out of running and track and field. And really a lot of things in my life have been driven by that. Right. And, uh, I think it's, I, I love it. Right. One topic we had talked about last time that I uh, kind of had fun with that I wanted to touch on again was the relationship between kind of serious uh, or or maybe intense distance running and serious consumption of alcohol, <laughs> which <laughs> you, had, you had brought up to me over, we'll say for sure, over a couple of beers, but you had kind of brought up this relationship a little bit. And I think we threw around some theories that were kind of fun. So, you know, right. kind of tying into the psychology of the sport and everything else a little bit. What is, what is your idea there and, and how that, that relationship kind of exists or, or is perceived to exist? Because I had a couple ideas on that as well, including some, I had some other thoughts that came up after we recorded last time. Well, I think what you said last time was incredibly brilliant, but I hope you can remember it. Oh yeah. Um, I, I wrote it down. <laughs> okay. So the reason I laughed wasn't because I don't think the topic is serious. The reason I laughed is I'd forgotten we discussed this topic because it's one of those things I bring out with all my running friends and say, what do you think about this thing? Which sounds kind of weird, but I've seen it derail runners careers. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, there's a history of running and drinking. I don't understand it. I think some of the theories are like going to the well so deeply mm-hmm. and that's the way they feel there's some repair. But I also think it's a, it's a, their drinking is a byproduct of some pain okay. and the running success is a byproduct of struggling through that pain. So that racing pain isn't nearly as painful. Yeah, you had mentioned that. You've mentioned that to me a couple times. Is the the idea that you kind of need some hardship, or you not that you need, but that that having some hardship in the past 
makes or, or leads can can predispose to success in running or in, in endurance sports because of just the voluntary nature of needing to make yourself suffer for success in that sport. If you come from a backdrop that has included some discomfort or suffering, maybe it's easier to to kind of voluntarily push yourself there if you kind of already have this experience behind you. I agree. So drinking oftentimes is an escape from hardship, suffering, and struggle. Running is oftentimes an escape from hardship, suffering, and struggle. Right. So if they're both escapes, why wouldn't you do both? Right. Some people do, some people don't. Some people have drinking problems because of it. Other people just do it situationally after hard races. One of the things that does make me a little uncomfortable is the comfort zone between running and alcohol in that run, run races are sponsored and oftentimes start and end at bars. Sure. And you have, you have a beer sponsor. Me. And I, I'm not, I'm a, you know me, I'm kind of a relatively free thinker sure. tend to be more liberal than conservative in a lot of the ways I look at interaction with people, but that's a tough place. Like, why does it make you, you gotta be really careful? Cause you're setting some up, some people up for a pretty significant failure. In terms of just the kind of overlap of addictive personality or Correct. Just, okay. Correct. Yeah. That's an interesting point. And no one talks about that. Like, no, I've, I've put on races, pretty high level races. No one says to me, I don't think we should have alcohol there because we want to make sure that the percentage of people that may have some problems with it don't feel marginalized and other people go all in and deep and it gets a little crazy. No one has ever said that, but I normally say, Hey, listen, you know, I don't necessarily see this going hand in hand. Um, so maybe we just serve, you know, replacement fluid. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. No one has ever thought at least expressed to me that it's a concern. And yet I think it's a concern. Yeah. I've never heard, not that I've never heard that as a concern, but right. That, that concern seems to kind of get, uh, left by the wayside a little bit. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I had mentioned last time, and I was thinking of this more from just not from a habitual drinking standpoint, but just, you know, as a uh, a post-race kind of thing or, or a social uh, event after, like, you know, why, why do, especially in, in ultra running or trail running, why do we kind of equate the post-race scene with beer or with drinking? And I think part of that might be just as, I, I mean... As people who spend a lot of time in their own heads and maybe are not the most <laughs> socially adept uh, group because, because of the amount of time that we just spend uh, in, in isolation and training and in racing and everything else, uh, just the idea of alcohol as a social lubricant might be part of the appeal from, from that standpoint. But that doesn't really explain, like you said, the, the kind of habitual nature of it for a lot of people. Yeah, I think your point is... It makes a lot of sense um, that social making leveling the playing field. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's universally why a lot of people drink. So why would that be different from right. a population of runners? Right, right. Yeah. The other thing that I had thought about after we talked about this last time was, you know, you you kind of said something that reminded me of a story that my old coach Andy Palmer used to tell about Greg Meyer, who was the the Boston Marathon champ in 83. And he said Greg would never make a decision without thinking about how 
it was going to affect his his running positively or negatively. So if it was, you know, what am I going to eat or am I going to have this piece of cake or are we, you know, am I staying up late tonight? It was, he, it was a conscious choice. Every every decision he made, whether it was going to have a, a plus or a minus effect and which is a, you know, a very hard, I, I would think a very difficult way to live. But also, you know, to have that single mindedness sometimes might be what you need in terms of what you need to, for success. But you had you had said you, you had kind of brought up the idea of alcohol use or abuse as something that would so clearly be a negative for somebody's performance, which is what triggered that in my yeah. what triggered that anecdote for me, which is true. And, and you kind of think about, well, if it's not going to help you or if it's clearly going to hurt you, why would you do that if you're serious about it? And one kind of thing that occurred to me is in the, the idea of kind of making conscious decisions or unconscious decisions, you know, so much of an elite athlete's life is going to be based around doing the right thing and around training and, you know, finishing your workouts and everything else. And it can feel, I think, kind of, I, I think it can be easy for your life to feel like it's not your own when it's governed by something that's this all-consuming. So if you're out there running, you know, twice a day, six days a week and 120 miles a week and, and you know, you're doing your strength work and you're doing everything else that's needed to be, you know, to keep yourself on an elite level, you know, as, as Quentin Cassidy said to Bruce Denton in Once a Runner, I feel like an animal, right? You just feel like this is, <laughs> this is all you're doing all the time and maybe consciously deciding to do something that won't benefit you uh, is almost a way of maybe asserting a little bit of control over your life when you feel like you might not Mm -hmm. have control. Yeah. It's like taking some ownership. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm doing this. I know this is bad for me and I don't care. I'm doing (laughs) it anyway. Right. Because, because that's how that's, that's the way that you feel like you're getting back in control of, why not put more obstacles in your way? <laughs> right? I'm not, I'm not like, saying it. Makes... <laughs> I only run 120 miles. Now I'm going to drink. I'm going to ruin my kidney function. My liver is going to be a mess. But this is even makes me tougher. I'm not saying it makes rational sense. I'm just saying like. Right. Well, so I don't know if you were, since you were talking about conscious, unconscious, I don't know if you were conscious of this. The idea of the epic. So you cited Once a Runner, which is like the epic running novel. And that epic concept of running and drinking, mm-hmm. it's how much can I go party? Can I run hard and party hard? Right. And I mean, you, uh, you know, the stories of multiple world-class world record marathoners. Sure. Who just live to drink. Rod Dixon, right? <laughs> um, I mean, they're, they're the quote abundant. on my blog. Now it's a little less now, but back in the eighties, mm-hmm. I think you would get, these guys would go, I mean, I've been out with a bunch of them. Right. And uh, the story, I, I, I always tell a story about one guy who was a national record holder at an event. And I was at an event with him for one of the shoe companies. And we had been friends. So we were hanging out as friends. But a lot of the other people there just knew him as so-and-so, the star. And they wanted to drink with him. Well, this guy <laughs> literally put away 20 guys. Oh, and the gosh. next morning when I, I I'd left early, I woke up and I went out for a run. And there's like a couple dudes sleeping in the hotel in the grass in the front of the hotel. They were just <laughs> the, 
the littered remains of the night before with this guy. And he just, like, he's, he's out running. Like, we went for a run, and these dudes are just absolutely destroyed. <laughs> and he's totally normal. So, I mean, I don't know if there's also something physiologically that elite runners can handle, but it definitely is an epic. Right, right. Okay. Well, this is an interesting area of research in the near future. We'll have to talk about it over a beer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, before we let you go, Joe, we have to go back to the desert island and you got to make your picks again. I'm sending you to a desert island for a year. You are bringing, once again, one book, one album, one food, and one beer. And I'm going to make the same joke I made last time. What... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> What, I, now I don't even remember what the joke was. Oh, what what Gabriel? Not Gabriel. Yeah, Gabriel Garcia yeah. Marquez book. Are you bringing to the desert island? I'm not. So, and I'm going to say the exact same thing. As much as I love loving the time of cholera, it will not be that. And okay. we rehashed on the previous podcast the whole with the coast episode that almost led to fisticuffs. Yes, well, with me and one of our teammates. That that um, that story will be lost to the ether of the uh, of the right. internet, I guess. No, go, so, uh, I'm sorry. Go on. Oh, no problem. The initial podcast, I said uh, Milan Kundera is the unbearable lightness of being. Yes. But since then, I've rethought it. So I'm going to go with Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Okay. And since we're talking about enduring, I thought, okay. Plus, I, I, I love the book, and it comes back in my life regularly. I constantly think about it. And the idea that if, if we search for happiness— we may or may not get it, but if we search for meaning, which ultimately is the big purpose, and we arrive at it, we will most likely be happy along the way. Huh. That's because, a fantastic idea. Yeah, because the meaning of, of, of happiness is so ethereal, right? Right. Like, I can be happy many ways, but I, I don't know if I want to search for that. But if I search for meaning and purpose in my life... I'll probably encounter a lot of happiness doing the things I'm trying to get to. Right. So there's a lot more to the book. I mean, he's, it was incredible. So he was a, you know, Holocaust survivor and, um, his whole meaning to get through was to be reunited with his wife. Mm -hmm. So I, I would recommend it for everybody. So okay. This book. one I'm actually going to read. I, I pretended that I was going to read the other one, but this one I'm actually going to read. It's, it's unbelievable. It may change your life even at this stage. Even as I've been ossified into an old man. <laughs> as we, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. It'll be better than love in the time of cholera for you, I promise. So it's a very low bar, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I, I would be remiss if we moved on from favorite authors and favorite books if I did not mention possibly my all-time favorite poem, which I'm sure you remember, a classic, not a haiku, it, kind of a free-form verse uh, entitled Put the Seat Down. My favorite all-time poem that resided on the uh, back know, of. Do you know I wrote that? <laughs> I know you did, but that was that was every time I every time I went into the bathroom in the store, I laughed when I saw that poem. That was the funniest well, thing well, I've ever seen. Thank you. <laughs> All right, uh, what album are you sticking with? Your same album? I am. So I went with Keen, mm -hmm. Hopes and Fears. Um, it, it's it's clearly not my favorite album. It also doesn't even represent a lot of the music I listen to. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to a desert island for 12 months, I like it. I, I tend to like a go-to in all the cars that I have. I, I, I really like it. And I think I said last podcast, it was over like 10 million. I, I think it's sold like seven over 7 million copies. I looked it up. Oh, wow. 
And that's crazy. But Especially really t- today, yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. Okay. One meal, one food. So, uh, we again, I'm just going to stick with it. So it was um, the Italian the fusilli pasta mm-hmm. with uh, olive oil, mm-hmm. uh, grated Parmesan, mm-hmm. and broccoli. Mm, delicious. Oh, it's, I could... Uh, I could even spinach too. I could do either one, but uh, I could eat that every day, all, all the time. Oh yeah, that's that's fantastic. And one beer. So again, not my favorite beer. Okay, but, but you're thinking you're thinking practically. Of, uh, you're thinking practically. Heller High Watermelon. Heller High Watermelon. First Amendment brewery. Yep, Twenty First Amendment. I've had a couple. I've had Evil Evil Geniuses Watermelon beer. I've had a couple of Watermelon Ghosts this uh, spring. Ooh, watermelon uh, ghosts sounds would, interesting. I still would do with Heller High Watermelon. It's about the easiest one I could drink. And if I'm going to be on a desert island, it's hot. It's probably just a lot. Yeah, exactly. You got to keep yourself refreshed. All right, Joe, that's all I've got. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this again. Um, uh, sorry about all the technical problems we had last time, but I think we were able to get pretty close to what we wanted to talk about this time around. Great. Um, Thanks, buddy. Yeah, yeah. So before uh, we sign off, just a reminder to everybody, the book is called Running Anatomy. It's the second edition from Human Kinetics is the publisher. You can get it online at any of your fine booksellers or uh, your local running store. And just a quick word that I wanted you actually, Joe, to mention the intro and outro music for this episode is different from our normal bumper music. And that's because you supplied it. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Thanks. Thanks so much for doing it. So this fall, um, I wrote an album of lyrics with uh, my music partner, Eli Wenger, who was in a band called Los Halos, who had a brief, short, really successful run. Uh, they opened for the National at one point. Really? He told me a story which I couldn't believe. Wow. Um, so Eli and I did a did this album under the name Bannister Effect. So it's sort of from Roger Bannister. And the concept is that you know achieving something seems impossible to do until it's achieved. And then psychologically you say, well, someone did it or something did it. I can do it too. Mm -hmm. So we decided that'd be a pretty cool name. And uh, we've written 12 songs. We're back in the studio in July to polish them off and get them mixed and mastered. And hopefully they'll be out this fall. Great. Does the album have a name yet? It does. It's called a life I knew. Nice. It's, um, it's a real personal story, a lot of my stuff, mm-hmm. that I attempted to make universal. Mm-hmm. So, because you know how sometimes when it's so personal, it gets lost. Like, you're like, I, I can't connect to it. Right. So, I tried to find that sweet spot where it was very personal to me, but the, the idea was that it would connect with more people than just me. So, I think it's a lot about love and lost love and the, the travails of life and how things are like the Buddhist line of all, all life is suffering and <laughs> you just got to deal with it, right? You're better because all life is suffering. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be out in the fall. People should look for that, the banister effect. And please yeah. do go pick up a copy of Running Anatomy. It, it will change the way that you think about strength training and, and running injury free and really just having a, a long and enjoyable athletic career. Joe Paleo, thank you so much for joining us once again, and hopefully I will see you soon next time I am in Philly. And for for everybody else, thanks for joining us again in the Pain Cave. Until next time, keep putting one foot in front of the other.